take a moment and pray as we prepare to hear God speak to us from his word. Our Father, we give thanks to you that you have not remained silent, that you have spoken into our world. We thank you that when you spoke, you didn't speak in a language beyond our comprehension. To your Old Testament people whose language was Hebrew, you spoke in their tongue. To Daniel, who was part of a court where the common language was Aramaic, you spoke in the language that he could use to communicate to many leaders, many nations. And when so many people in the days of Jesus were scattered in many nations, but speaking a common tongue, Greek, you spoke that language. And then your son commanded us to teach in every nation and baptize in every nation the things that he had taught. And with that command, the implication that we should translate the scriptures into every nation on the face of the earth, you speak to us in languages that we can understand. May your mercy in speaking so clearly make us more willing to open our ears and hearts today to hear what you will say. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Who is the most qualified candidate to rule our world? Who's the most qualified candidate to rule your life? It's a question that we all have to wrestle with at some point or other. And if your answer is Jesus Christ, the most qualified candidate to rule my life, to rule our whole world, then the scriptures teach us, and Jesus himself taught us, we could expect some pressure to accompany that answer. Because we live in a world where many people will say, we have a better answer. Someone else is more qualified. Now, we don't live in the first century, but the people who read the book of Revelation for the first time lived in the Roman Empire. And, and there was an ongoing conflict and tension about this question, who's most qualified to rule our world? And uh, the Roman Empire said, our emperor is, with all of his power and all of his might and his wealth. He's the one who rules the world. And so there was pressure exerted on first century Christians Really? You're, you're Jesus? So weak as to be crucified by the soldiers of our very emperor? You're going to argue that he's the most qualified to rule the whole world? So it's interesting that in that kind of competition, right, who, who's most qualified? And that arena of pressure, then in the book of Revelation, Jesus is called the ruler of all the kings on the earth. He's called that once, ruler. He's called the Lord four times. 
In the 22 chapters of Revelation, Jesus is called Lord four times. Two times he's called the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He's also called the Lamb 27 times. So at the very moment that there were people going throughout the provinces of the Roman Empire saying, we want you to make an offering to this statue of our emperor. And we want you to say that your Jesus is second best to him. At that very moment, Jesus revealed himself as the lamb. More frequently than anything else, he was saying to his people, the most qualified candidate is not the one who uses power to deceive and dominate and manipulate. The most qualified candidate to rule your life is the one who sacrifices himself to bring life. We're going to hear a, rev- a reference in this morning's scripture reading to the first resurrection. Resurrection life. Jesus sacrificed himself, this lamb, 27 times he's referred to as the lamb, the one who sacrifices himself to bring the offer of life to a world that is under the power of death. We're going to hear a reference this morning to second death. If you will accept Jesus' offer of resurrection life, you will not experience the second death because he is the lamb who has sacrificed himself to offer life to a world under power of death. And that, more than anything else, is what qualifies him to rule the world and to rule your life and mine. So just to make it look like I do earn a paycheck, I am going to preach more afterward. But I think that was the sermon. (laughs) So now we'll hear the scripture reading for the day. Thank you, Donna. Hmm. Let's try this one. This one. There you go. Sure. We there? Okay. The scripture reading today is from Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6 and 11 through 15, and Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. 
Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And Revelation 21.1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So one of my favorite places on the whole planet is... Um, Jerusalem. I've had opportunity to visit there a few times and would go back as many times as I could. Oops. All right. Sorry. I'll create a word picture then. Um, one of the problems of visiting Jerusalem is you want to you wanna see everything. And, and nearly every rock you look at has a history and a story that goes with it. And that story may go back only five or six or seven centuries, you know, to medieval ages, the Ottoman Empire, Crusades, this kind of dark period of history. Or the story attached to that rock may go back all the way 20 centuries to New Testament times. Or it may go back millennia to the days of the Old Testament. And you want to stop and you want to ask about every rock you look at. I mean, you want to learn about everything. You want to hear every story any person has to tell you. But you can't because you're probably not there for five years. You're probably only there for two or three days or maybe even just a handful of hours. And so, if you and I had an opportunity to go to Jerusalem for, say, five hours, I would want to look at three things. I would want you to see the Temple Mount, where the Temple of Solomon stood. And I would want you to go just a short journey beyond the Temple Mount to a church called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, um, built over the site where Jesus was crucified and buried and resurrected. And if I had to pick a third, because we only have five hours, right? We don't have five years. We can't see every stone. We can't tell every story. Let's go to the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane. And afterward, we'd feel very disappointed that we didn't get to see everything, but we'd feel like we had seen three of the biggest things. That's what we have to do today with Revelation chapter 20, okay? <laughs> um, there are so many questions about what's going on in this chapter. We don't get to answer them all. We don't have five years. We don't have five hours. We have a few minutes. 
So today, I just want to tell you what I think are the most important truths about three features of this chapter. And you may walk away going, I still got a lot of questions. Well, let's go sometime back to the city and walk around and talk about every stone, (laughs) Uh, even if we don't get to do that today. So the three realities I want to talk about today are an enemy, our ultimate enemy described in this chapter as the dragon, Satan. I want to talk about the second death. What, What does that mean? And about first resurrection. So let's start out with that ultimate enemy, the dragon. Um, Verse 2 says uh, that this dragon is a symbol. Now, we're 20 chapters into the book of Revelation. If you're joining us today for the first time, you haven't had the benefit of learning this discipline over 20 weeks uh, of of saying there's a lot of symbolism in this book. And so uh, realities are described using symbols. Is... Does God have an enemy who's literally a dragon? No. No. But here, this symbol of dragon is used, and then it's piled up with all these other names. Dragon, serpent, devil, Satan. So if you speak Greek, devil means adversary in your language. If you speak Hebrew, Satan means adversary in your language. This is God's enemy, the enemy and adversary of his people. What does he want to do? He wants to deceive the nations. Verse 3 says that he's going to be sealed into a pit. Again, more symbols. For what? We'll mention that later. Why? So that he might not deceive the nations any longer. But he still wants to. And so when he gets released from this pit for a little while, verse 3 says, then he will seek to deceive the nations. And verses 4 through 9 describe that. Um, And uh, I'm sorry, verses 7 through 9 describe that. We didn't read those this morning, but you read there this kind of sense that God has this adversary. And therefore, his people have a great adversary who desires to deceive the nations. How does Satan deceive the nations? Let me just mention three ways that I see that happening. One that has to do with the cross and the other will symbolize using emperor worship from the first century. And then we'll talk about the cult of Babylon, rewinding to chapters 17 through 19 of this book. So one of Satan's efforts to deceive the nations is, is the kind of tactic he used at the cross where he might say to the world, look, you need to be redeemed. And God's chosen redeemer is Jesus Christ. But Jesus will fail. He will be destroyed. And so there is no hope. That's one of the ways that God's adversary, Satan, wants to deceive the nations. Is to say, look, he's dying on a cross. There is no hope. Your best hope to be redeemed is not hope at all. So whatever plans God has to redeem the world through Christ, they will not work. That's one approach. It's kind of the frontal assault approach. And we see it illustrated most vividly in the crucifixion of Christ. Of course, as we were singing earlier, God is sovereign over us. And even things that the enemy means for evil, God works for good. So the thing that's supposed to destroy Jesus actually 
is God's purpose to redeem the world. The second tactic that Satan uses to deceive the nations, we might have seen if we were alive in the first century in the Roman Empire, this tactic of emperor worship, right? Where Satan would say to us, yes, you need to be redeemed, but there are plenty of ways to be redeemed. Jesus isn't the one way. He's not the only way. Yes, you need to be redeemed. Yes, the world is broken. No, you can't fix it. So you need to worship someone, something very powerful. Throw Jesus into the mix if you want to, but he's not the redeemer. That's not the frontal assault, let me destroy your hope. It's a more subtle tactic. And a third tactic, what I call the cult of Babylon, if you read this description of the great city of Babylon in the book of Revelation, it's, it's the devil's way of saying to the world, you don't need redemption. There's nothing wrong with you that a little power and pleasure can't fix. They're all lies. They're all lies. Satan desires to deceive the nations. The good news of the scriptures is that those lies won't succeed. This binding of Satan pictured in this chapter, uh, interpreters don't agree on when exactly that binding occurs. Is this something that will happen in the future? Is this something that has already happened? Is this something that a, a process that's occurring between Jesus' first coming and his return, and so it stretches out over that whole period of history. I tend to fall in that last camp. Interpreters don't agree, but we all do agree on this. This binding of Satan is a symbol for a long period when the good news about Jesus is going to spread throughout the whole world with great success. Is that period still lying in the future, or is it the success of the gospel over now 20 centuries and who knows how many. Well, we don't agree on that, but we do agree on this. The lies won't work. The gospel is gonna go forward with power in the world. Many people are gonna hear the truth that Jesus is the most qualified candidate to rule our lives and our world. And they're gonna to respond to that message in faith. The greatest enemy of God and his purposes and his people will be defeated and that, here's why that's good news for you. If your faith is in Christ, every lesser power that opposes your Redeemer, every lesser power that seeks to harm you will ultimately fail. It may succeed for a time, but in the end, it will fail. One of the verses that we did not read this morning says that the devil who had deceived the nations will be thrown into the lake of fire himself. He is more powerful than I am, but he is not more powerful than our God. And he himself will be called to account. If that's true of God's most powerful adversary, then it's true of every lesser power That's the ultimate enemy. Let's talk a moment about the second death. Here's the main thing I want you to know about the second death. 
If your name is in the Lamb's book of life, if you are seeking life through Jesus the Lamb, if your name is in the Lamb's book of life, then Jesus will protect you from the second death forever. If I know that, then it's okay if I don't know every detail about the second death, isn't it? (laughs) If I know that there is one who can protect me from it, whatever it is, forever and ever, (laughs) wait, how how do I know that? I'm listening to what God is saying in the scriptures, right? And and he says in verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. We're going to get there. Over such, the second death has no power. If your name is in the Lamb's book of life, if you're seeking life through Jesus, then this second death has no power over you. Now, there are other books mentioned in this chapter. Again, symbols. There's the, the book of life which we're told elsewhere in, the, in Revelation, belongs to the Lamb, Jesus. And then there are other books, right? And, and um, books were opened, verse 12 says, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And verse 13 says, the dead were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Wait a second, which book is it? Is it the Lamb's book of life that determines the basis on which I will be judged? Or is it this other book that says what I did while I was alive that forms the basis on which I will be judged? It's pretty simple. The Lamb's book of life is the basis on which we will all ultimately stand or fall. But if I'm seeking life through Jesus, then the book of how I live right now is going to reflect that. And then no one could accuse God in the end of being arbitrary in his judgments. No one would be able to say, but hey, God, you're basing this decision on on knowledge available only to you. Nobody else gets to look in the Lamb's book of life except you. Well, he's a just judge who would say, if you want to know whether this person was seeking life through Jesus, look at their life. One of the things they did was they confessed how broken and needy and sinful they were. And they, and they came to me in repentance and humility. And that shows up in the way that they live. Oh, so you're saying they... They get a pass on judgment because they lived better than everybody else? No. No. What Scripture says plainly from cover to cover is the only way to come to God is through trusting what he can do for you rather than trusting what you can do for yourself. And if that trust in him is genuine, it's going to be reflected in this book of how you live. Can I be protected from having to answer for how I have lived? Yes, if I'm seeking life through Jesus, I will be protected forever from the second death. What is the second death? The second death is 
final separation from every aspect of God's goodness. It's what we would typically summarize with one word, hell. The second death is a metaphor. People don't die twice, literally. Now you're going to send me some news articles about somebody who was resuscitated. I, I know, I know, I know. But you know too. People don't die twice, literally. Second death is a metaphor for something. It's a symbol for something. It's a symbol for being separated from God and his goodness. It's what C.S. Lewis calls in some of his writings the miserific vision. Uh, you find some references to this in his little book called The Screwtape Letters. If, if you have a chance, give that a read. Right? It's this uh, very clever depiction of what it's like to follow Jesus using conversations between a demon and his uncle demon. <laughs> um, and it's all, you know, this kind of creative use of the imagination. But one of the things that Lewis says in the dialogue between Screwtape and his nephew Wormwood is that if someone persists, just insists on seeking life their own way apart from God, if that person finally comes face to face with God, if that person finally sees God, then they won't see him as good in any way. They will only see him as the barrier that's been standing between them and the life they want apart from him. And so while the rest of us who are hoping to have this, this vision of God's goodness and blessing would long for that, if you're just insistent that you don't need God or his path to life because you got it, you found a better way, you found a more qualified candidate. Maybe it's yourself or maybe it's your politics or maybe it's your money or maybe it's your good looks or maybe it's the fact that you can still do 75 push-ups at age 64 and the guy who sits in the cubicle next to you sure can't. I don't know what it is that you're trusting, but everybody has... There's something competing for our affection. And if you insist on standing before God and saying, God, I got this. I found a more qualified candidate than you or your redeemer lamb, Jesus. Then you won't see God as a blessing. You won't see any goodness in him. You will see him face to face one day. He is your creator. He is mine. We will answer to him. But in that moment, if we're insisting on finding life apart from him, then we will see him as nothing but the barrier to goodness. So we won't see him and appreciate his goodness. There's nothing left but misery, and that's where Lewis came up with this phrase. He invented it, the miserific vision. Like standing before God and being filled with misery because you cannot experience any of his goodness ever again. That's a creative way of describing what the book of Revelation means when it talks about second death. It uses a different kind of language. Lewis uses the metaphor of, of, of vision, right, and seeing God for the first time. 
Um, Revelation uses the metaphor of a lake, a lake that's on fire. Now think for a moment about what a lake is in the first century. It is a source of life and refreshment and sustenance and, and the ending of drought. And, and it is where you go to find food, whether that's through fishing or through irrigating a crop. It is a symbol for the flourishing of life. Imagine longing for that kind of flourishing life, living in a desert climate. And you go there and, and what you find is fire instead. And what you find there is the opposite of a flourishing life that you were longing for. We shouldn't imagine that Scripture is saying to us that God is somehow going to give people bodies that can't be consumed in fire and therefore they're thrown into fire forever. It's like all this... Of literal and somewhat barbaric interpretation of these symbolic images. But symbols in the book of Revelation stand for something real. And in this case, the real thing is is that separation from God's goodness. So that every time you longed for something good, you would instead experience its absence and something miserable. There's good news in this book, even if there's hard news in it. Not everybody will experience the second death. You don't have to. I don't have to. Because Jesus offers us life. Verse 6 says, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. I'm going to make a debate sandwich. We're going to shove the thing that's debated, that's not as clear, between two slices of what's more clear. Okay? (laughs) So here's the first clear thing we want to say about the first resurrection. There is a kind of life so secure that the second death has no power to take it away. There is a kind of life so secure that even the worst thing that could ever happen to a person in this universe cannot shake it, diminish it, take it away. That is clear. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection, whatever it is, we haven't said yet, Over such, the second death has no power. There's a kind of life that's more powerful than the second death. Now, here's the debated bit. What is this first resurrection? When does it occur? We don't have time to look at every rock today, so I'm going to tell you what I'm persuaded is the right interpretation I will not have time to give you all the evidence that leads me to this conclusion. But here goes. First resurrection is the moment you put your faith in Christ. You have right at that moment to share in 
all of Christ's resurrection glory and joy. You will fully experience that when he returns. Let's call that second resurrection. The Bible doesn't use that term. First resurrection. Wait, I thought Revelation said there's a thousand years between the first resurrection and something else. Yeah, I think that thousand years is a symbol for the whole period between the first and second comings of Christ. Other interpreters see it differently. Um, I kind of side with Augustine, so this interpretation goes back at least to the fifth century. It's not some modern thing, even if you've never heard of it before. And here's another clear thing that no matter when you think this first resurrection occurs and no matter when you think that thousand years happens or whether you think it's a literal thousand years or something symbolic like, like I do, um, this much is clear. The reason that people can have access to this kind of life described here as first resurrection is because Jesus offers to share his life with people who are under the power of death. When you read first resurrection, who do you know in the biblical story who has experienced resurrection? Jesus, this lamb who was slain and who now lives again. So if anybody's going to experience resurrection, it's because Jesus has. It's because Jesus has so much life and he's willing to share it with other people who have none. Whatever first resurrection is and whenever it occurs, and I've already told you the answers because I'm right. That's a little bit of a joke, but also not, but mostly. It's an offer to people who have no life in themselves to share in the life that Jesus has. Whatever the first resurrection is, it's good. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. And the only reason any human being could experience that goodness is because of the goodness of Jesus who wants to share it. Who is the most qualified candidate? Everybody's looking to answer that question. Voters are trying to answer that question when elections roll around. Employers are trying to answer that question when they're filling a a job post? People who are dating are trying to answer that question? Who is the most qualified candidate? Some people aren't dating because they can't find any qualified candidates, right? Everybody's trying to answer that question on some level. Have you ever thought that a dead person was the most qualified candidate for anything? You ever wanted to vote for someone who wasn't alive anymore? You ever wanted to date someone who wasn't alive anymore? Some of you are going, hmm, I thought I was. There are a couple dates that went that bad, but I wouldn't have knowingly chosen it. You wanted to hire somebody who's not living? Listen to what Jesus is like. <laughs> Jesus says, I want to give the gift, the first resurrection, to people who are dead. Who's he giving it to? Those who have been beheaded. Martyrs, people who died, 
people who, if, if we had lived in their culture, in their moment, our empire would have been saying, this is the proof that they're the weak ones. They were too weak to resist the power of the empire. They got killed. Beheading was the way Romans killed people. Unless they really wanted to humiliate them, in which, they, in which case they would crucify them. So we're talking about people who are weak, who had no power. We're talking about people who are too foolish to know when to compromise their faith just a little bit. If you would just say Jesus is number two and, and Caesar is number one, we're not going to cut your head off. You're too weak to resist us and too stupid to see it. Who would waste anything on you? And Jesus says, I will. These are my people. Weak people. Who have no life left. Foolish people. Who have nothing in their hearts but love for me. These are my people. The people who aren't qualified for anything in this world are my people. And I can't wait for them to share the life that belongs to me. Let, let the dragon spin his lies. We're following a lamb. Let the empire threaten let the world pressure us and tell us that trusting Jesus will get us nowhere fast. When has the dragon given me life? When have power and wealth looked at me in my weakness and need and loved me? Why? Do we follow the lamb? Oh, he's the Lord and he's the ruler and he's the king of kings. But 27 times in this book, he is the lamb because he is the only one who has sacrificed himself to purchase the privilege of sharing life with weak, needy, foolish people like you and me. I don't want my name written in any other book. Do you? If your name isn't written in the Lamb's book of life, if you're seeking life somehow apart from Jesus or, or sort of Jesus in cooperation with some other source, join us in this season of reawakening. We'll kick it off tonight. Over the next five weeks, we're going to be focusing our attention on this lamb who died and was resurrected. And he wants to share resurrection life with anybody who will put their faith in him. Let's pray and give thanks to him. Lord Jesus, nobody else but you knows the full extent of our weakness and need and foolishness. And so it is incredible 
that you would want to share the gift of life with us in our weakness and need and foolishness. May we treasure that gift more than ever today. We pray in your name. Amen.